Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 9, Rescuing History from the Shadows. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Hey, it's not going too bad, you know, for a dude sheltering in place in a global pandemic. How about you? That's You, you, you set the bar at the appropriate level there, I think. <laughs> that, that's how we should answer every time somebody asks, how's it going, or how are you? Good in the circumstances, under the circumstances. All things considered. All things considered, yeah. I tell you what uh, I'm excited about is we now have, thanks largely to your your labors, uh, an expanding social media presence, don't we? Yeah, I mean that's really stretching the the definition of labors. But yes, I did set up a Twitter account and an Instagram account. They both have the same um, at, so it's at hist atg, so h i s t a t g, as in history against the grain. Um, and so we'll be posting stuff there. Uh, you know, at, at times, mostly about the show, but I'll try to put some stuff up just related to history and things that we're maybe reading or thinking about, uh, you know, cool quotes, whatever the case may be. And uh, we also have a website. We have, we've had a website that you've been beautifully administering uh, with a lot of cool stuff up there as well. Uh, information about the episodes, the source we're using. Uh, we got some writings up there. We've got links to our episodes actually on there as well. So it is a full service website with all that you might need for your History Against the Grain listening pleasure. And our only remaining step to conquer the world of media is uh, maybe a TED Talk. TED Talk, yeah, we, yeah, we're booking that though, right? You told me that you were getting that set up? <laughs> I got, yeah, I got my cousin working on it, so That's yeah. good. Yeah, right. we, our History Against the Grain fans need us parading around on a stage in headphone mics, talking out our ass for 40 minutes, whatever the case is. <laughs> All in a day's work. Yeah, that's where the real money is, though. Podcasting, you're not gonna you're not gonna survive off that. But TED Talks, that's the big money. Talking about big money, you know. Look, I'm sheltered in place as I am, I find myself looking for things to watch on on TV when I'm not, you know, deep in the scholar's vineyard of history against the grain. And uh, I know we've we've both uh, compared notes a bit on on a current ten part series uh, broadcast on ESPN about Michael Jordan. And the championship team, the Chicago Bulls, uh, that he played for, and uh, it, it kind of helped inspire, in part, uh, today's uh, episode, didn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a little behind, and I have to say, I'm only three episodes in. I know everybody else is is done with it, but uh, it is it's a fa- it's fascinating, and you know, it's like everything that Michael Jordan is a part of. It's both he's he's technically not the subject, right? It's about this uh, the the last championship Bulls team. But he's his gravity is such that everything revolves around him, and uh, you know supposedly he has a final say in what gets in and what doesn't. But it is a remarkable account of one of the defining figures of um, I don't know my lifetime. I'll say uh, obviously he's important to basketball, but he just transcended it in such an important way. Even that people didn't know basketball still knew Michael Jordan. Uh, people didn't know basketball can still want his shoes and 
you know, just this, this individual who became such a brand. I don't think at that time that was really something that happened. So it's, it's fascinating, both in a basketball sense, because we both love the NBA, but uh, also just in a kind of social and cultural and economic sense, just the, the pull and the gravity of this, this single individual and the team that he was part of. So I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I, gotta, I can't help myself. I got to mention, you know, he and I were born in the same month of the same year. We both played basketball, and that's where the similarities end. He went on <laughs> to a very different kind of career. But, you know, in all seriousness, I've enjoyed uh, looking back at it because, as you point out, it seems almost, you know, common now in, the, in a sort of media sports culture uh, the, 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 that we're constantly treated to. But, you know, when Jordan did a lot of that stuff, you know, with the Nike uh, contract and the TV commercials and the ubiquitous silhouetted symbol – it really uh, represented a kind of new new departure for what celebrity in sports might might mean, and and thus it also connects to what again what we want to talk about today, which is sort of the the construction of a story, a hero's story, and it fits. Gosh, you know Jordan's, and I'm reminded of this uh, story fits almost perfectly well that classic definition of of the hero's journey, you know, that Joseph Campbell so famously laid out. In the 20th century, the hero's journey, you know, we have this fresh-faced country kid from Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, small, basically small town, North Carolina, comes to the big city as Mike Jordan. I I can't even remember when he was just Mike Jordan. Yeah, that was and, so, uh, stood out when they called him that because <laughs> one of his old coaches, I can't remember who it was, but. Right. And now, and now you could just say Michael, pretty much, or at right. least you could for many years. And MJ, and he, yeah, right. I mean, this was one of the. It was estimated. I don't know who comes up with these things. It was he was one of the three best known people globally, along with, you know, Princess Di and I don't know somebody else. I can't remember. Jesus. But was it was it Jesus, uh, John Lennon, or Jesus, or somebody? <laughs> but you know, he so he he fulfills this amazing mythic storyline um even with his uh his transformation his crisis of faith remember for a couple of seasons he, he left basketball entirely he's suffered these sort of you know tragic moments in his family he played semi-pro baseball uh, only to return and as the story would have it you know uh be victorious in that that 98 season 97 98 season winning a sixth uh championship on a last second shot too on a so oh, man. just the perfect, the perfect story, except for the fact, of course, that after retiring after that series, he came back and played for the Washington <laughs> Wizards a few years later, which doesn't really fit in the archetypal, tip, typical uh, hero's journey, I don't think. Unless like it's a, a, tragic, Luke, a tragic hero. <laughs> yeah. If, if Luke Skywalker after the, after one of the, the movies just came back and was like selling used cars or something like that, that was not, not quite the same. That's episode 10. I think that's that they're going to get into that. Well, you know what? We're going to see here in our podcast today, and we'll have no small delight in, in telling our listeners that the hero, the mythic hero of history, contrary to what we sometimes think about heroes in our own day, um, that the, the mythic hero of history, at least, was always a figure of great flaws, of great personal contradictions and such. So we're going to take Michael Jordan and use him as our segue now into our discussion of Heroes in History. My hero. My hero now. To die a hero. 
All right. So from Michael Jordan, then, uh, to the heroes of history. And, and again, you know, Josh, as we've discussed, it's living in this time of pandemic, which in its own way is, 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 is sort of epic and, and even a little mythic, you know, in a historical sense, uh, because it inspires such of, uh, you know, what I call a matrix of emotion and information. Uh, which is often where the heroes of history, you know, reside. Uh, that is on the margins of of what's knowable and what's only imaginable. You know, on the on the margins of fact and fiction, of of light and shadows. Uh, and so, this certainly this drama we're living in has generated a certain number. I, I guess you would say maybe would be heroes of the moment. Yeah, a few people have stood up. I, you know, one of the things that's that's so crazy in this this age of Trump is that, in in many ways, that the most forward facing heroes of the moment are just people who are competently doing their jobs, which stands in such contrast to, we'll just say, people who are not competently doing their jobs or doing their jobs at all. So, in in some ways, the bar is is low right now for these kind of public facing, you know, major figures, um, and that's why I think it, it, the the regular people are standing out so much. Uh, people who are, you know, literally putting their, their lives in line just by going to work, uh, not even, you know, mentioning uh, healthcare workers, but literally just the people working at Costco, for instance, or, or the, the, your local grocery store. Um, you know, you want to thank them after they ring you up. Thank you for your service. It's not something you normally say to your person checking you out at the supermarket, but it feels appropriate at this moment to do to do that. Oh, you're so right, you know, because we, we recognize this house of cards we're living in. There's a, there's a kind of a thin line you know, between remaining comfortable and ensconced, sheltered in place and, and, you know, not having food or something like that. And so, yeah, no, I totally agree. You get these sort of regular folks who, in effect, take on the mantle of, you know, heroic actions. And, and you know, we want to acknowledge that there is that, you know, there is that uh, element to, at least in our modern, um, you know, in our modern lives, of, of, of the hero of, of the moment, you know, and, and truly, I, I think it's worth making the distinction that a lot of times these folks, you know, who, who's, you know, we express our, our gratitude for and such for doing these, these important, this important work that they, they tend to be what I would call, you know, sort of one off uh, doers of good deeds. That is to say, as you point out, whether by just doing their jobs or, you know, intervening, you know, fate has them intervening at some, you know, moment of maximum gravity to help someone or save someone. And hey, I was even thinking back, uh, you know, years ago now to one of the, the first of these sort of one-off do-gooders, if you will, because he has such a regular guy name. It was Lenny Skutnik. And I'm old enough to remember when Lenny Skutnik did something heroic. He dove into the fr frozen Potomac River in Washington, D.C., after a plane, a commercial airliner coming into National Airport, what was then National Airport, had, had come up short and landed in the river. And Lenny Skutnik jumps in and he saves a woman who was near drowning and, you know, swims her to shore. And it was just a couple of weeks later uh, during uh, Ronald Reagan's, uh, who was then President Ronald Reagan's State of the Union address that he had Lenny Skutnik stand up and be acknowledged. And of course, that has created a tradition ever ever since of of that kind of political moment in which the hero, you know, gets gets recognized. But I don't know about you, Josh. I mean, as as you know, inspired in the moment as we were uh, for that sort of you know uh, accomplishment, 
that I think if you look high and low through history textbooks, maybe, or, or searched for, you know, monuments or memorials or things inscribed in marble, you'd probably have a hard time uh, finding Lenny Skutnik. So it's a kind of transitory or temporary, you know, heroic acknowledgement that then, you know, creates a kind of one dimensional picture of the hero as, as, you know, doer of good. And, and then, and then it sort of fades. Uh, from our memories where, you know, whereas on the other hand, the heroes of history that we're going to talk about today, you know, tend to be invested as monuments uh, for the long run. And they also tend to be less uh, one dimensional in that classic, uh, that classic type, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's, you know, when you look back at, at the quote unquote, the heroes of history, as we're, as we're saying, What's so striking is how few of them emerge as these perfect individuals, um, how multidimensional they really are. And you think about, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible, for instance, uh, it's full of these flawed heroes. Moses, you know, brings the Israelites out of Egypt, but can't even go to the Holy Land. And David uh, and um, God himself in the Hebrew Bible is actually an immensely flawed individual. You could say um, Gilgamesh in, in the older stories. Uh, you can think of, you know, Jesus and Muhammad. Both emerge, I think, in the, in, in the traditions as as almost flawless individuals. But there's a case we made historically that that's a that that occurs over time. It's not something that's there right away. Uh, the Buddha, you know, has to go through these years and years living in a, a life of vulgar materialism, as the Buddha say, before finally achieving nirvana. So, to kind of case after case after case after case, you've got these heroic figures, these um, these paragons of of rightness and all this stuff. But their own lives, even in the traditions, which could say anything about them you know, make the point that they went through things to get to that point. Uh, they had failures, they had setbacks, they were flawed. Um, and those flaws don't diminish their heroism in many ways, it enhances their heroism. So we have this long tradition of these three-dimensional heroic figures in, you know, places around the world in different traditions, uh, they're constantly showing up. Yeah, and I think it's even, you know, as you suggest, the, the working out, or as the case may be, the not successfully working out of those contra uh, contradictions that that raises these individuals, these flawed heroes to that kind of mythic level, which is why, you know, it's so strange because when we look into our own national storybook, you know, of American history, uh, some of those heroes that tend to be promoted, you know, very self-consciously promoted as national heroes from our past and whether it be in, you know, popular literal storybooks or, you know, in, in, in so many ways, uh, you know, we learn them as kids uh, in, you know, in school, in, in uh, you know, grammar school, history and that sort of thing. Or, you know, we have holidays uh, celebrating their, you know, their birthdays, that sort of thing. They, they often, I don't know about you, but they come off uh, those sort of officially approved heroes of national, the national story, come off as, as pretty one dimensional to me, you know, um, and, and sort of fake. Uh, that is, uh, just to cite one, you know, probably well-known example of George Washington, right? You know, I mean, you, you get, uh, soon after Washington, Washington's death, you get um, the first sort of definitive biography of George Washington. But it was very much in this, this mold of creating self-consciously a national hero for the new nation so that people who would read the life of Washington would know what it is that an American hero actually, you know, represented. And, and, it, and it proves to be a fantastically commercially successful endeavor for the author, a guy by the name of Mason uh, Weems, 
who had proposed the project to one of the, the publishers at the time. And his life of Washington will go through many, many editions. And, and each edition, in some ways, made Washington even more, you know, kind of one-dimensional in a way, less flawed, less contradictory. It was in the fifth edition, for example, published in 1809, where that, that story of the cherry tree uh, was first uh, included. You mean the true story of the cherry tree, right? That yeah, <laughs> I need that story to be true. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta save that for me. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, there's been a long-running, you know, uh, sort of argument about this, but I've never, I've never really seen great evidence that you know suggests that Mason Weems didn't just make it up. I mean, he he, he came in late. The publisher said we got to have new material. People want to buy the new edition. And so uh, he claimed to have heard the story from an ancient nurse <laughs> of the child, George Washington, who now must have been, you know, ancient indeed. But, uh, you know, the, the famous dictum, right, from the story was that uh, when confronted by his father, young George said, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know, I can't tell a lie. Uh, and that was with regard to whether he'd cut down the old man's uh, cherry tree. So uh, what? Uh, what do we take away from this? You know, the young impressionistic readers. It was said that even Abraham Lincoln, you know, the only biography as a child in his home uh, was that of the life of Washington, that, uh, you know, he's, a, he's an exemplar of morality. It's what we historians call didactic tales, you know, tales that are meant to teach a moral, uh, the moral of the story. Um, but the thing about it is, uh, for me at least, it, it tends to leave them very one-dimensional, the, the characters in them. You know, sure, we remember the moral, but we don't really learn a whole lot about what seems to be the more likely and more complicated story of, of the hero. And, I, and so I think what I want to suggest is that we may be poorly served, you know, by that notion of, of heroes as either a one-off you know, do-gooders or, you know, famous but one-dimensional characters because, you know, those stories get stale. And I don't know, Josh, does anyone really like stale crackers? Not many people. I paused for, for a second because I think one of my kids likes stale Oreos. But that's not quite the same thing, right? <laughs> hey, an Oreo looks like a phantasm of color and energy compared to a stale cracker, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, it creates a dilemma and, uh, and the dilemma is, so, you know, how do we present heroes in a more dynamic, more realistic way that perhaps we can actually learn something from instead of the same old, you know, tired you know, stories of morality. And so, uh, but look, as, as soon as I say that, you know, I got to acknowledge what, not everybody likes you fooling around with revered figures. You know, that whole full disclosure business isn't always uh, terribly popular uh, because you're messing with, you know, national icons. And and yet, you know, by the same token, so, okay, so look, uh, we're going to take on the, the challenge. But are we doing it, if we're going to present, you know, George Washington, say, and all his flaws, are we doing it just, you know, for the temporary satisfaction you know, of, of exposing revered figures? I say yes. I, I say yes, but I know that you're going to say <laughs> no, not just for that. So that, that suggests a little little difference between us. Well, I guess you didn't read The Life of Washington. I guess, no, I, I, need, I need to go back this, to that one. <laughs> the lesson didn't stick. Um, 
So yeah, the gotcha moment, you know, uh, I mean, it's kind of sort of the low hanging fruit. Like sometimes our students who are new to history, they, they sort of, it's, you know, it's great to watch the, the lights come on when they realize, hey, someone's being contradictory, you know, and, and it never fails. They want to say, oh, that, that person, you know, fill in the blank, revered care. That person was a, was a hypocrite, mm -hmm. you know, but I always sort of consider that to be, again, the low hanging fruit. That's just the, really the first level of, of, of analysis. And I, I think there's something deeper, you know, that we can find in that contradiction beyond the fact that there is just a contradiction. And to do that, I think, you know, we return to that classic and much more compelling conception of the hero who is always presumed to be flawed. Because otherwise, what's our great takeaway, Josh? Uh, humans are hypocritical. I mean, right. that doesn't strike me as terribly compelling. So we go back to that that more compelling conception of the hero uh, who we presume is flawed. And, and that's just the beginning of our work because then we have to figure out how that tragic flaw or contradiction, often hidden, by the way, in the shadows of the hero's makeup, you know, how it, um, how it may explain something to us that we otherwise would not have understood, whether about that person or the time, let's say, in which he lived, um, or even about the enduring traditions that that contradiction represents, you know, down to our own day. And so I want to quote here the writer uh, Hilton uh, Owls, who I think put his finger on something. He said, look, facts don't necessarily reveal who we are, but our contradictions almost always do. It's the warring self, the self that's capable of both caring for others and intense self-interest that makes a story. And so, yeah, look, to understand those contradictions is to understand the world that made them, uh, the world they in turn would help to define uh, going forward. So here's what I propose. Uh, let's take a closer look at one of those tragically flawed characters of American history. What do you say? Let's dig in. So who are we going after in this, this next segment? I can't wait to see which figure of American history is going to end up in the crosshairs of Professor Paget? <laughs> well, look, I don't want to keep you waiting. I mean, but yeah, there's no shortage of national heroes we might take on, you know. Um, but the one I want to settle on, I think, is, is perhaps the quintessential uh, example of the flawed hero. Uh, and that would be uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, whose name is nearly synonymous with America's founding and our oft, uh, you know, professed uh, belief in the in the virtues of liberty uh, and freedom. Uh, I mean, this is the man who put pen to paper, right, and said, "Life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness." And uh, there's there's no shortage of tribute to Thomas Jefferson uh, if you go to the federal capital, if you go to Washington, D.C., you know, and, and visit his monument. And yes, there's a monument at Thomas Jefferson Memorial. It's a kind of, you know, striking, um, you know, figure that greets you there. There's a larger than life statue of Jefferson. Uh, and he's he's residing in what is uh, the memorial sort of confines uh, built to look like his own home, his famous home at Monticello. And under that domed roof are his words, 
which sort of act as a kind of, you know, American charter, really, you know, from the Declaration of Independence and some of his other writings, the, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, for example. And uh, you can't help but be moved, I guess is what I'm trying to say. In other words, it works, that kind of heroic immortality uh, has its own effect on one. And the same is, is true if you go to his home, uh, preserved today as a national park at, in Monticello, uh, outside of Charlottesville in Virginia. So, uh, and, and certainly, you know, it's, there's no denying that Thomas Jefferson, you know, as the uh, American, you know, revolutionary, the quintessential American revolutionary uh, is an undeniably influential uh, historical figure. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. But before we do, you know, and, and, and here's the fun part, you know, look, there's it for all the, the memorializing of Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, there's a deeper, more conflicted story residing in the shadows of not only his history, but of America's history. And in some ways, it's a really poorly kept secret, you know, just on the face of it that the man who wrote all men are created equal was Josh after all himself. What? Red haired. Exactly. And tall. Yeah. He was relatively tall for his age. Now, you know, I mean, this is a slave owner. We know that uh, if you only have a, a passing acquaintance, you know, with early marriage, you know that, you know, this is, this is true, but something strange happens that even when we know it, I don't know if it's what psychologists call cognitive dissonance or something else. We tend to push it, you know, maybe uh, compartmentalized thinking. We tend to push it to the side and preserve the other memory, you know, as, as eclipsing that and uh, uh, transcending that. And, and yet, look, uh, as historians, and particularly on history against the grain, we're not about to do that. You know, we, we feel strongly, I think, you know, my friend, that there is truth to be found in this contradiction. And so to the extent that we flesh it out, we have a more valuable uh, outcome, you know, for our labors. And in this case, it centers on a fundamental contradiction that we discussed in the last episode. We talked about the 1619 Project, and that is the contradiction of slavery and freedom the fundamental and tragic contradiction lying at the heart of America's national story. So here's what I propose. I want to, let's, let's hear from the hero himself uh, at the moment of his realization of his own tragic character. And this is a quote now from Thomas Jefferson. It was a, a passage uh, from a letter he wrote uh, as a correspondent with a friend in the year 1820. Jefferson is, is approaching uh, 80 years of age. He's been out of politics now for uh, just over a decade. He's retired to his mountaintop uh, home at, at Monticello in Virginia. He's been watching uh, or reading, I should say, debates going on in Congress at that time over what was called the Missouri Compromise question. And at the heart of the Missouri Compromise, there was this issue, this, this uh, nagging issue of slavery that seemed you know, not to want uh, to, to die. So here's what he had to say in this letter. 
I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 76 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons. And that my only consolation is to be that I live not to weep over it. Here, I would suggest, is Thomas Jefferson, the tragic hero figure, a figure who, who despairs that his greatest accomplishment, the American Revolution, is now to be undone by the sons, as he calls them, who will destroy the work of the fathers, those we sometimes call founding fathers, which makes him, I would say, Thomas Jefferson, at the very least, a kind of Oedipal figure, wouldn't you? <laughs> I haven't thought about that way, but it's, it's yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to plumb the depths of the Freudian implications. No, let's let's leave it there, though. We should leave it there. <laughs> uh, but definitely, let's be clear now. Jefferson was lamenting the great discord and division and selfish, what he regarded as selfish material interests expressed in the Missouri Compromise debates. You know, where, where was the great and selfless commitment to the nation? Jefferson wondered that he and his contemporaries had made nearly 50 years earlier. So, uh, you know, we, can, we almost can't help but see the classic archetype of the tragic hero. And, and, and here's, here's why. Okay, let me just let me cut to the quick of this thing. Jefferson's existential crisis of slavery or over slavery was a crisis that he substantially himself had created in 1776. He did so as the author of the principal author of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and, and he did so when he excluded slaves from the inalienable right of liberty, as he expressed it in the Declaration. And by his subsequent refusal following the revolution to undertake or to lead a serious effort at the abolition of slavery, even though that was a course taken by other revolutionaries. So it's not just Jefferson's unwillingness to strike a blow against slavery, but quite to the contrary, he himself helped to ensure that slavery would become ever more deeply entrenched in the American project as he would personally build and tirelessly build his entire life at Monticello, his home, uh, a life he determined to make the very ideal of the landed gentleman scholar, you know, of the type that he so admired among the French Enlightenment elites of the day. And he calculated that such a life, a, a life of refinement and learning and privilege, which, by the way, you can still visit today on display at Monticello, or even uh, if you can't make it to Virginia, uh, on the Monticello website for that matter, uh, a world that he had meticulously planned personally in his own set of account books and correspondence and, and journals. I mean, so there's no shortage of evidence down to the last penny spent that all of it would have to be drawn, uh, one remembers, from the sweat and enforced almost entirely uncompensated labor 
of those many dozens of men, women, and children who he had enslaved at Monticello uh, for the last century, half century uh, of his life following 1776. So as you know, as I say, Josh, this this makes the despairing Jefferson of 1820, the old man of the mountain, despairing over what he knew and others had willing he and others had willingly created. He knew he knew this, right? And and I think I think that's what makes him, you know, in that classic sense, uh, a tragic hero. And I, I think as we're gonna see, that's really only a half of it. But as you also know, historians have long aided and abetted in keeping that side of Thomas Jefferson in the shadows. Uh, it's not that they didn't know it, but that they explained it away, that he was a man of his time. What could you expect from Jefferson? You know, outside the cultural frame, slavery existed in his day. Or that he was maybe, and then some telling of the story, he was a reluctant. Yes, he was a slave owner, but a reluctant you know, slave or something that he inherited in some fashion, or, or maybe the the more optimistic of his biographers and, and historians would say, well, okay, granted, but you know, he was a kind slave owner. Not uh, just his optimistic biographers; it's the Monticello website itself basically makes it makes that claim very <laughs> clearly that yes, he was a slaveholder, but he was Ouch. he was a uh, a kindly slaveholder and. Yes, sometimes people were beaten on the plantation, but it wasn't because he wanted it. It was because of the overseers went too far and this sort of thing. So, I mean, it's literally being whitewashed. I don't know if that's meant ironically or not, but uh, being whitewashed yeah. on the website for <laughs> this national monument, which, you know, to its credit, does have much more than it used to on, uh, you know, the slave quarters on Monticello and, and, and slavery in general, but still has that blind spot where they feel like they they're almost they almost have to also defend him um, from this indefensible thing that that's such a part of his his life and who he was wow and again we're not psychiatrists or psychologists we we probably can't definitively answer what that that tendency is but i like your i i think you just coined a new phrase whitewashing (laughs) of american history means exactly that very literal and uh (laughs) hey listen it was uh it wasn't really until the 1970s that a, a serious historical effort was made to even bring any of this stuff truly into the the light of day you know and it was fawn brody a biographer historian who wrote uh what became a a well-known in some cases you know kind of notorious biography of jefferson called an intimate biography where she finally told the story after so long of uh you know other historians deny the story of sally hemmings right who was the enslaved woman that even in his own life, Jefferson had been rumored to have an ongoing uh, affair of some sort with, well, to Fawn Brody's way of thinking, it was an affair. It was a love affair. And so she depicted this relationship between Jefferson and an enslaved woman at Monticello in, in romantic uh, terms. And, and, you know, look, I mean, living in the, in the Me Too era, I don't, I don't know that we're quite buying that the way maybe we, you know, used to be the case that that a man of his extraordinary privilege and power and authority could have something, anything like really a truly consensual, reciprocal uh, affair of the heart with a woman he has enslaved. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it's insane to to call that relationship anything but, um, you know, concubinage at best, but, but, uh, you know, sexual slavery at worst. It's a, it's, you know, built into owning somebody 
the power relationship is so unequal that it's impossible to, to call it anything um, but exploitative, right? Absolutely. And we're going to come back to that word concubine a little bit later. But uh, for now, let me just say this, that, that this all this obfuscation and it look, you know, historians have been in the front ranks of those who have done the obfuscating, that is, of keeping these stories in the shadows or in the blurry boundary, you know, fact and suspicion. Uh, I think the real damage there is that it keeps us from understanding both the wider influence of Thomas Jefferson, you know, in his own time and since as a revolutionary, but also how those very contradictions became a part of that legacy uh, to play out not only in America, but as uh, you're going to tell us here on a world stage as well. Now I ain't looking for no hero, no oil win. Please don't volunteer, we'll be broke by saying. You have that, that amazing quote from him as he's lamenting how his, his life's work is being wasted by his sons, or at least his metaphorical sons. He's thinking of those sons, I think, in generational terms. Like, literally, these are these are the generations who came after him and the quote-unquote founding fathers. But another way to, to think of that, and I'm sure this is not the way he's thinking of it, another way to think of that is that his sons are, in many ways, slavery and racism. And those sons are uh, going to propagate, we'll just say. And they're going to spread out around the world not necessarily slavery, but but the legacy of race in particular has to be seen as one of the, the great legacies of of Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, this is certainly arguable, but there, there's there's a argument at least that he's one of the first people in the Americas to um, posit a theory of race. He does it kind of quietly. It's kind of buried in uh, this this book called Notes in the State of Virginia, which is late 1780s. Is that about right? Yeah, kind of the middle of the 1780s, he was trying to make an argument uh, to curry favor with the French for why this nation was worth supporting. Yeah, so you can just, you can find it. It's, it's available online. You can look through the table of contents and it's all very, you know, he's he's kind of extolling the virtues of, of his country and it's about the land and it's about, you know, the geography and it's about the, the rivers and this kind of thing. But there's also a section on people and buried in that section, he says, I advance it therefore as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowment both of body and mind. And so this is written uh, roughly a decade after the Declaration of Independence, where he has stated boldly and baldly that uh, all men are created equal. And so this contradiction, you could make a case, is right at the center of, of the United States. It's a contradiction, and obviously the 1619 Project sought to uh, expose in many ways. But it's a contradiction that's not just one that exists within the United States. It's a contradiction that exists across the world. And, you know, one, I think that the big stories of world history in the modern age is that we have on the one hand, from the late 18th century in particular, this new rhetoric of freedom and liberty that's emerging from, you know, Enlightenment uh, philosophers in, in France and in Germany and certainly in, in uh, North America and South America as well as England and places like this. They are increasingly... Uh, presenting these ideas of liberty, of natural rights, of the things that you know Jefferson and his um, his fellow founding fathers were so um, attracted to, but those words are being said at, at a time when, as we know, many of those founding fathers owned people uh, who they did not see as uh, maybe sharing that equality that Jefferson had talked about. Um, and so, what race becomes, and one way of, of thinking about race in a larger sense, 
And I think we'll 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 do an episode on race at some point because it is is something that's worth talking about as a kind of global phenomena and one that is obviously so important in the modern in contemporary world as well. But one way to to, to think of, of race is that race becomes the ultimate way of uh, erasing the contradiction. Right? If Jefferson says all men are created equal, but some people aren't men, as he's suggesting that if in fact, as he says, blacks are inferior to the whites in the endowment both of body and mind, then you know, that's cutting directly against the statement of equality that he made, made in uh, the Declaration of Independence. And it's not just in the United States. In a place like Great Britain, which across the 19th century is increasing uh, rights and increasing access to the vote and, and creating more of a mass democracy over that time, that's all happening at the exact moment in which they're increasingly establishing autocratic rule across the colonial world. And not just the British, but obviously the French and the Dutch and later the Germans and the United States itself. And so what you have is, is this contradiction, not just in the slave societies, which have these ideas of, of justice and freedom and liberty, uh, but also in the imperial world, where you have this huge contradiction between the democracy and freedom and liberty of the home country and the autocracy of the empire itself. You know what? Can I, can I tell you, you know, how much I appreciate this? Uh, because, you know, last week or last episode, we talked about the 1619 Project almost entirely in the you know, the confines of the American national story. But by taking this story uh, internationally, if you will, you know, globally, that what you're doing here and what we profess as a podcast to do is to remove the, you know, the borders from, from history and to, to release us from that straitjacket of trying to reconcile something solely in the context of the national story where because of, you know, the assumptions of exceptionalism and that sort of thing, it becomes really almost tautological, you know, it becomes very difficult and sort of insanely illogical to do. So I just, I want to give you props here as you get on your motor scooter and take us across the world, uh, because what, what you're doing is giving us some much needed uh, perspective. Yeah. So, so again, this, this contradiction of, of, Freedom and liberty spoken and written by men who benefited from the denial of such things to huge swaths of humanity. Increasingly, the majority of humanity are falling under these these terms of race um, and are denied the very things that these uh, these men and mostly they are mostly men, uh, you know, say they profess. And the irony here is that despite this denial of equality that, that's happening around the world, uh, you know, being imposed by Europeans, by Americans on peoples throughout the world. Once you kind of introduce these ideas of, of freedom, of liberty, uh, once you establish the idea that all men are created equal and are endowed, endowed by the creator and all this kind of stuff, you can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? And so as much as they wanted to, you know, maintain their control over, the, of, over their empires, as much as many people wanted to maintain the slave institutions of the United States or the broader Americas, the rhetoric of, of these, these ideas does escape, and we see it in all these places where those who are subject to the authority of these imperial systems are going to start using that rhetoric against the imperialists themselves. Uh, there's a famous debate that happens in, in India in the 1830s. Uh, the issue is about education, and, and there, there's certain people in the colonial government who realize that to govern what is now a vast uh, domain, a vast territory covering big portions of India, they're going to need more and more help from, from Indians. But in order to do that, Indians are going to be needed to be given access to some kind of education. And so part of the debate is what kind of education is that going to be? And, and it's decided it's, it's got to be Western education. Thomas Babington Macaulay makes the case that 
the entire shelf of, of good English books is better than the entirety of Indian literature across all of history. Um, but, uh, but one of the persons, people arguing against Macaulay, because Macaulay's point is we got to give them Western education. They need to have this stuff or they can't help us govern. And one of uh, the people on the other side of the argument says education is going to be our high road out of India. That by giving them education, we're going to give Indians the tools to uh, to eradicate us from from this this empire, right? For to, to, it's going to cost our empire, essentially. And this is a, a theme that's going to play out over and over and over again across that later 19th century and certainly into the 20th century as well. Um, and so I actually want to quote uh, here about Winston Churchill, so a much later figure, but it's a similar thing where you have this high-minded rhetoric which is going to be paired in many ways, like we saw with, with uh, Jefferson, with a much more sordid backstory because Churchill himself is literally one of the most uh, imperialist of the imperialist in, in Great Britain in that first half of the 20th century. People are constantly shocked by how uh, dedicated he is to empire and how uh, dedicated he is to these racial ideas of other people. But what happens is that as Churchill takes over the prime ministership uh, at the beginnings of World War II, he now becomes thought of as his great protector of democracy. And so I want to read you something from a, a British journalist named Johan, Johan uh, Hari. And for our British listeners, I know that Johan Hari has, has some controversies of his own, uh, but that doesn't cut against this particular quote. He said, the great irony of Churchill's life is that in resisting the Nazis, he produced some of the richest prose poetry in defense of freedom and democracy ever written. It was a check that he didn't want black or Asian people to cash, but they refused to accept that the bank of justice was empty. And so by broadcasting these ideas in the world, he's essentially planting the seeds of the demise of the British Empire in many ways, because people are listening and people are going to use those same words against him and against the empire in the decades uh, in the years and decades after the end of World War II. To put a finer point on it, Kwame Nkrumah, who becomes the, um, the first leader of independent Ghana, which had been called the Gold Coast under British rule, he says kind of collectively about, about you know, the words of Jefferson, the words of Churchill, the words of these generations of Enlightenment scholars and, and other purveyors of the ideas of freedom and liberty, says, all the fair, brave words spoken about freedom that had been broadcast the four corners of the earth took seed and grew where they had not been intended. Um, and so again and again, we see these cases where the rhetoric being used really to support the rights of white people, um, and often white people as opposed to those living in their midst uh, who didn't share that racial designation, uh, were then ultimately going to be used by those to um, try to erode those, those ten tentacles of power that were so significant in this modern world. And then maybe our last example here, Ho Chi Minh, the famous Vietnamese revolutionary, ends up fighting on the side of the United States in World War II. He uh, builds up this group of, of kind of guerrilla um, soldiers to fight against the Japanese occupation of, of Indochina. Eventually, members of the OSS, which is the precursor of the CIA, are going to parachute in and they're going to help train his forces and they're going to, they're going to serve alongside him. Uh, they're going to help rescue uh, downed airmen in the, in the area. And they do a really great service uh, Ho Chi Minh and his and his Viet Minh do this great service to this this Allied war effort, and so in many ways, to acknowledge this, when 1945 come, when the Japanese surrender, Ho Chi Minh is really the last remaining person with any kind of reputation in North Vietnam, and so he is going to um, write and he's going to read a Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, and in that he says, 
um, and you might recognize these words. He says, all men are created equal. They are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This immortal statement was made in the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. In a broader sense, this means all the peoples on the earth are equal from birth. All the peoples have a right to live, to be happy, and free. He quotes as well in the same document from the Declaration of the Rights of Man from the French Revolution, that all men are born free and with equal rights and must always remain free and have equal rights. He goes on to say, those are undeniable truths. Nevertheless, for more than 80 years, the French imperialist abusing the standards of liberty, equality, and fraternity, have violated our fatherland and oppressed our fellow citizens. They have acted contrary to the ideals of humanity and justice. And such, so it's such a, a kind of ironic story of these ideas of race really developing to solve this contradiction um, between ideas of liberty, ideas of equality and fraternity, of justice, all these things, um, but denying those things to people of color throughout the world to non-Europeans throughout the world, but still being heard by these people and ultimately used against the imperialists, used against uh, uh, the slaveholders to argue for their own freedom. And it kind of harkens back to the quote you read from Nicole Hannah-Jones in last week's episode, where she makes the case that to the extent that there is democracy in this country, it's because of the efforts and the will and the desire of, of African-Americans to kind of make sure that the country lives up to those ideals that were written by Jefferson and others um, in, in the years of the Revolutionary War and after. Wow, you know, and look, I mean, Lester Gowen said, not, not only the United States turned a deaf ear to Ho Chi Minh's, you know, eloquent avowal of, of Jeffersonian and French Revolutionary sentiment, but, but as we all know, it went, it went more than that, didn't it? I mean, you know, the United States will engage in what used to be, uh, anyway, its longest War in Indochina, you know, what we uh, call stateside here, the Vietnam War. So fighting a war to deny. Now, if, uh, you know, okay, fine. There there was, you know, other Cold War, you know, issues and communism, et cetera. But, but just, you know, let the record show. And, and because it wasn't the first time, was it? I mean, you know, we can, as you said, there are other examples. Uh, you were talking earlier about Sukarno, you know, in Indonesia, I was thinking yeah. about Emiliano Aguinaldo in the Philippines, who, after he, not unlike Ho Chi Minh, uh, partners with the U.S. to end the Spanish Empire in the Philippines, uh, assuming that that would lead to uh, full independence, you know, to only find out, Aguinaldo does, that the United States had negotiated with Spain to purchase uh, the Philippine Islands, all 7,000 Philippine Islands, and to annex it as an American territory. And he had already himself, much like Ho Chi Minh, had prepared uh, a Philippines Declaration of Independence, which he also, you know, quoted from Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, there's a, cra there's a crazy story about that, right? Where, where after the deal to uh, turn the Philippines over the United to the Americans, the Spanish and the Americans end up having this huge party in, in Manila, and Aguinaldo and his men are kept out of the city, literally, the, the city is guarded so they can't come into the city and celebrate or I guess not celebrate uh, this this uh, this deal made between one imperial power and then the one that's replacing it. So it is a really sordid story. And, and you know, it does does speak to this this idea that, you know, these words are out there. And, and the hope, I think, of a lot of colonized people, of, of enslaved peoples, is that people will take those words seriously, that they matter. And what we see again and again and again is that using those words against 
your oppressors doesn't always lead to um, to to the uh, the outcome that you'd hope for. You mentioned Sukarno. I just you know because we're on the topic, I want to mention one quote that he he has. This is from a, a something he wrote in 1927. I want to say so he's still a young man. He said, "My boy had boyhood was spent eavesdropping on America's founding fathers uh, because he had read all this stuff and it, it had kind of given to him these ideas of liberty and and it kind of ignited in him this idea that his own country can." ultimately uh, have its own moment of freedom from uh, from this oppressive imperial society, in this case, the Dutch. Uh, but he kind of saw in the American Revolution a story of his own uh, country and, and, and something that they could then achieve in the future. And of course, Sukarno ends up getting thrown uh, overthrown by an American-backed coup. So uh, another of these, these stories, and there are many of these in uh, the history of the 20th century. Uh, and, you know... Look, and maybe it's just the, the, the literary imagination of, of, you know, my own mind or so. I don't think so because, you know, like in the Philippines, the 80,000 or so U.S. troops that were sent to the Philippines in 1898 to make good on the purchase and annexation of the islands, sent there not to foster the independence of the Filipino people, but to, to forestall it. And, and what it turned out to be, Oh, a good two and a half years of intense warfare, followed by a longer military occupation, uh, saw U.S. troops adopting the disparaging, you know, pejorative nickname for the Filipino troops. Uh, well, there were few, but one of them was the was the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, so that racial imagination that had been so embedded, the contradiction of it embedded all the way back to the notes on Virginia, you know, that you read earlier, uh, now easily transferred to a transnational global uh, community of non-white subjects, in effect, of what would become a kind of growing American empire. So you, you know, you just try as you might, you can't escape the contradiction <laughs> and the tragic contradiction as it plays out, you know, on a global uh, setting. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's something I think we need to talk more about. Um, like I said, we, we do need to do an episode on race because even just telling these stories today, there's just so much more to say and there's so much uh, deeper we can get into this. There's a global story to be told. There's an American story to be told. And it's something I, I think that's worth uh, digging deeper into. Oh, and, you know, we most certainly will. And uh, well, how about this partner? How about we take it out today? But instead of letting Thomas Jefferson get the last word, uh, we introduce a new a new character into the American story. We need more characters. Yeah, we do, and we're and we're going to find them for you here on History Against the Grain. I, I, this is what I want to call uh, finishing today. I want to call Madison Hemings and the cost of contradiction. He told you I can't help myself. I love you it. know with these sort of literary uh, expressions. Uh, but who was Madison uh, Hemings? Uh, you might want to know. Um, Madison was Thomas Jefferson's son, uh, born in 1805 at Monticello, a child born into slavery. And a child Thomas Jefferson fathered with an enslaved woman at Monticello named Sally Hemings. Uh, And it was almost 50 years after Thomas Jefferson's death uh, in the year 1873 that Madison, uh, by that point himself and his you know, in his uh, late 60s, that Madison Hemings provided uh, what he called his memoir to a local newspaper there in Ohio, in Portage County, Ohio, where he was then living. And it was then 
that he disclosed publicly what only a relative few had known privately, that Thomas Jefferson was his father. And thus, from the shadows came a revelatory new history. Uh, and as we'll say, it wasn't a history that was necessarily accepted for many years. But here's, here's in part what Madison Hemings has to say regarding Thomas Jefferson's uh, time in France after the revolution. Uh, he says, quote, during that time, my mother became Mr. Jefferson's concubine. And, and Josh, you would use that, that phrase earlier, concubinage, to, uh, you know, to characterize Jefferson's relationship with, uh, with Sally Hemings and, and you know, in distinction to what Fawn Brody had tried to say was a love affair. This is what Madison Hemings himself called it. Uh, and when he was, uh, quoting again Madison Hemings, when he was called back, meaning when Jefferson was called back home, she was enceinte by him. And the word he uses is a French word here, uh, enceinte, which I'll give you one guess as to what that means in French. I, I actually have no idea. Uh, I was going to let you guess. Pregnant. Oh, okay. Pregnant. He desired to bring my mother back to Virginia, writes Madison Hemings, uh, back to Virginia with him, but she demurred. She was just beginning to understand the French language well, and in France, she was free. While if she returned to Virginia, she would be re-enslaved. Uh, she would have, been, as Madison suggested, been free in France because France then didn't acknowledge the, the American laws of slavery. Um, so why did she return? Well, Madison Hemings says she refused to return with him and to induce her to do so, he promised her extraordinary privileges and made a solemn pledge that her children should be freed at the age of 21 years. In consequence of his promise, on which she implicitly relied, said Madison, she returned with him to Virginia. Soon after their arrival, she gave birth to a child of whom Thomas Jefferson was the father. It lived but a short time. She gave birth to four others, and Jefferson was the father of all of them, closed quote. And that includes uh, Madison himself. So wouldn't, wouldn't you say that that really gives lie to the idea that theirs was somehow a, a romance, or even for that matter, that Thomas Jefferson was some kind of benevolent slave owner when he said that these children his children would be freed but yeah not until they turned 21 it's it's so crazy i mean you've uh you assigned that book master of this master of the mountain right correct I, I haven't read it but i've read a lot about it and you know what what shows up in there is that he's just a yeah i think you mentioned this earlier he's just he's a rigid counter of everything right that he's got in his head all these figures mm -hmm. and numbers and he's counting the number of nails being made by his slaves in this, this special part of the plantation and I can almost imagine him having that conversation um, with Sally Hemings and and thinking about the amount of value he can get out of his own children for 21 years before he'd have to release them. Is that wrong? You can't. No, it's not wrong. And, and you know, I mean, there was a division of labor at Monticello where it was perceived that the Hemings children, his children, would have certain uh, privileges. Well, let me re read it to you, though, because lest we... Assume, therefore, that somehow those privileges translated into some kind of great benevolence on Jefferson's part. Here's what Madison had to say about that. He said, we were permitted to stay about the great house and only required to do such light work as going on errands. 
Harriet, his sister, also a daughter of Thomas Jefferson, learned to spin and to weave in a little factory on the home plantation. Uh, so, concludes Madison, we were free from the dread of having to be slaves our lives long and were measurably uh, happy, he even suggests that they were permitted to be with their mother fairly frequently. Um, but, you know, here's the thing, you know, if you read into the deeper narrative here, uh, before we conclude that somehow life was pleasant for enslaved children, even in Monticello, uh, this is something that Jefferson never acknowledged. Uh, that is the parentage to, to his family, as far as we know, his white family, nor to any other uh, biographers or, or, you know, even though it was rumored by his political enemies in his day that this was the case. Here's what Madison has to say, and I think this is telling. He says, uh, speaking of Jefferson, he was not in the habit of showing partiality or fatherly affection to us children. We were the only children of his by a slave woman. He was affectionate toward his white grandchildren. Clearly here, uh, there was a fundamental contradiction. And we're not wrong to, to dismiss this idea that it was somehow his benevolence that transcended the actual enslavement. Because for many, uh, as you suggest at Monticello, the, the life of enslavement meant, you know, the, you know, the work of the fields or the work of the nail factory or, you know, what have you. Um, and yet where it might have counted most from a father, you know, to his son, that, that emotional connection, that emotional, uh, that, that basic acknowledgement was never granted by Jefferson to, to Madison and his his uh, immediate siblings. And so, uh, yeah, when, when this memoir came out, by the way, Josh, in, in 73, 1873, it was roundly discountenanced and denounced as, as fraudulent and it, that Madison himself was somehow an imposter. And, and that line was, was uh, kept up by historians, you know, really right down to the 1970s when, when Fon Brody decided it would be a romance. And, uh, Here's, here's where I'll end it, you know, with just some stunning, I think, narrative facts. Uh, of the fair complexion, Jefferson children um, born to slavery, Madison was the only one of his siblings to identify as black uh, throughout the rest of his life. Uh, and he was the only one to publicly disclose that Thomas Jefferson was his father. Now, Madison's own son, identified as white uh, and served in the Union Army during the Civil War, where he died while incarcerated in the notorious Confederate prison camp of Andersonville. Thus, we can count the Civil War and its nearly 700,000 deaths among the costs paid for the tangled and tragic legacy of slavery. Uh, a legacy inextricable from Thomas Jefferson's own tragic hero legacy, the tragic nature of which included now his own grandson dying in a wartime prison camp of the Confederacy, itself a rogue state dedicated to the preservation of slavery. And I don't know about you, uh, my friend, but as far as tragic stories go, I'm not even sure that Shakespeare could top that one. Now, history is definitely uh, better than, than fiction in this case, right? 
the stories that, that actually happen are, are in many ways more compelling than the stories that anybody can make up. And they go a long way toward teaching us about the contradictions we still live with in our own time. Thanks for listening, guys. This has been Episode 9 History Against the Grain, and we're going to talk to you again next Friday. See you next time. It's a sin when you play into ignorance, another one closing your eyes again, so you don't have to see what's happening, then now, what's going on in these streets, you can't live by what you see on TV, stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat, stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.